This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I want to do a huge shout out to our new members of the Patreon squad that signed up in the month of March. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you, Vanessa. And thank you, Jillian. If you would like to become a member, don't forget our all access and VIP members get 10% off all of our courses and events and access to our blog membership. All members will get access to certain CEU levels for select episodes. We hope you're enjoying the show and continue to support us here at Life as a Coder. Go on over to patreon.com forward slash life as a coder and sign up today. We thank you for your support. Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series brought to you by Ozark Institute, an initiative of OncoSpark, a technology enabled revenue cycle management company discussing your life as a medical coder, offering tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast. My name is Jennifer McNamara and I am your host today. Our goal is to bring you timely industry topics in the field of health information management, as well as tips for work-life balance. If you're a first-time listener, we thank you for listening today. And if you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank our sponsors over at Ozark Institute, an initiative of OngoSpark. OngoSpark is a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company. Today, we continue our conversation on the behavioral health crisis. I wanted to kind of take a minute now and, and talk about the business side that we look at as coders and billers and those who look at documentation, physicians, those that have to document. We have what's called the social determinants of health, and we have risk adjustment, and those areas do meet. So I wanted to talk about SDOH, the social determinants of health, and risk today. And I have my special guest, Barbara Shaw. Now, many of you know she was on the show before, a great educator in the risk adjustment arena. And because I love teaching risk adjustment and she loves teaching it, we love talking about it, we thought, hey, let's come on and talk about the social determinants of health and some of the areas in risk adjustment that affect mental health. It's all about getting the patients the services that they need and understanding our documentation. That's what it comes down to. So we can abstract that properly and really account for the true cost to provide services for a given patient. Now, Barbara and I go way back, you know, back to the beginning of the pandemic. It was it was kind of cool. You know, a lot of us instructors and educators out there wanted to come together and create a way for those in the business of healthcare to get the education they need so that they can be better at their jobs and, of course, increase in their understanding of abstracting conditions appropriately uh, for the needed care the patients need, right? We want to make sure those the true costs and the true documentation is related to the insurance so they can get covered, right? They need these services. They need them covered. So that's part of our job. 
And so we decided to create this conference and it was a great thing. We had educators from all over the country come together and teach on various topics. Barbara actually attended and that's how I got to know her. And then she reached out to me and wanted to know of other projects that I have available because she would love to speak at a conference. And I said, hey, let's figure out a way for us to work together. So her and I and other educators created a risk adjustment conference in 2021. And it was so fabulous. People like Jordan Johnson and, of course, we had Monica Watson, Barbara Shaw, Angela Martinez, Sherry Poe Bernard came on and talked a little bit. And we just had such a great time discussing uh, risk adjustment. And so we know it's important to us in the field. But for those of you that never heard of it or are curious about it, there will be some things in today's episode that will kind of shed some light on that, help you understand why it's so important and how you can uh, be better at abstracting. Some of the, the industry insights that Barbara offers are so valuable. I even learn every time I listen to Barbara, I learn something new. And so I hope you enjoy this episode and I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. So stay tuned. Hey guys, as coders and billers, we get it. Healthcare compliance can be a hassle, inconvenient, and a headache that never goes away. That's why they developed EpiCompliance, an easy-to-use software that helps you stay up to date and on track with ever-changing requirements of healthcare compliance. This cloud-based software covers HIPAA, privacy and security, OSHA, and the ACA OIG Medicare Waste, Fraud, and Abuse compliance requirements. It includes forms, policies, tasks, and mandated compliance training all in one easy-to-use interface. Do you need to send and organize your business associate agreements to your clients? You can do that with EpiCompliance through their Business Associate Center. And most importantly, in our profession, EpiCompliance covers you with billing and coding for waste, fraud, and abuse compliance. Don't risk getting on the CMS, HHS, OIG list of excluded individuals and entities, which is a permanent record on the internet. Ready to stay up to date and compliant every month with EpiCompliance? You have to do it. Did I mention it's required by law? You might as well do it right with EpiCompliance. Right now, Life as a Coder podcast listeners can save 20% on their subscription by visiting epicompliance.com forward slash Ozark and using the discount code Ozark20. That's epicompliance.com forward slash O-Z-A-R-K and use the discount code Ozark20. That's O-Z-A-R-K-2-0. Do it now. Well, as mentioned, I have my special guest, Barbara Shaw. Welcome back to the show, Barbara. It's nice to have you back. I'm so glad to be back. Thanks for the invitation. Well, of course, we've worked together, you know, so many times and we are connected on on different uh, social media outlets. And I just really find it fascinating how we keep running into each other in these risk adjustment conversations. Right. Honestly, honestly. And Barbara has been such a great help, along with Angela Martinez and helping us uh, create this wonderful risk adjustment masterclass. And because right now my focus in these, these few episodes we're doing is about mental health and behavioral health crisis, we wanted to bring in how that affects our coding um, and our reimbursement and the data we collect that, of course, affects the patient's health and the services that they can receive. Uh, we are going to put some really great references in our show notes that are based on the information that we'll be discussing today. But the first topic we're going to get into, we wanted to talk about, is the social determinants of health. Now, these, of course, have been identified 
in our ICD-10 codebooks uh, since ICD-10 became available back in 2015, and they are identified with the code ranges of Z55 to Z65. Uh, when it comes to just an overall understanding of Z codes, how would you best describe their benefits and their proper use? I would have to say that with the emphasis on ICD-10, like for the updates for 2022, the emphasis was specificity. And as we all know, as we're transitioning into value-based care systems, that we have to remember to code all conditions and things of such that are applicable to that patient per that date for that encounter. Um, specifically, there might be times where the patient comes in and they might address something, you know, with whether it be a homeless type issue or they're having issues with inadequate food, you know, whatever those things that are pertinent to that patient that's documented, it needs to be recorded in that chart because as we know, science is all data-driven and all those things are important. So as we hear about social determinants of health and our population health um, teams and such, and we're migrating into the full implementation to value-based care systems, we have to remember those Z codes because they are applicable to those patients as appropriate or as documented. Absolutely. And I was really, of course, so excited when we had the update in the ICD-10 guidelines specifically to have the patient self-identify these things. But again, we do have to ask questions. We have to be you know, inquisitive and in asking our patients how they're doing, gather this information that affect their health. Now, briefly, I'm going to talk about just some of the basic categories that we see, but you'll see identified in these codes, which is the employment status and the workplace hostility, which... Uh, I will say really falls into what we're talking about in these few episodes here. Um, the socioeconomic status, which affects the patient's health, poor housing conditions, food insecurity and poor diet, discrimination for sexual orientation, gender identity and race ethnicity, um, lack of family support, community factors such as urbanicity and safety, police brutality in neighborhoods, and then of course fixed characteristics like gender, age and nationality. So much, right? So what are some of the things, reasons you can think of that, just pick a couple here, that could affect the patient's health? Well, for example, if you um, work for like a Medicare Advantage payer, and as they're doing the transitioning, you know, into VBC and everything like that, we know the focus is on cost and quality because that equals better outcomes. So for instance, if you have a patient that has been recently discharged from the hospital and you know that they have an issue with not being able to buy all their medications, um, if they have issues with um, buying foods as, as they have conveyed to the clinicians, that's where these Medicare payers can do these little add-ons to their plans. For instance, sometimes they can set a, um, a limit on how much to charge for like a specific insulin. So that way their patients can better afford that medication. Some of these payers have little incentives where they may give their patients a $50 gift card where they can go to a certain grocery store to purchase healthy foods. There are little things like that. And specifically speaking, as these Medicare Advantage plans have been created, the cost of these Medicare Advantage plans um, allow for the patients to pay less out of pocket than traditional Medicare. That's one example. 
Um, another great example is, for instance, if someone's working in population health, as they as they follow patients who have been maybe admitted, say they have congestive heart failure or COPD, the population health teams can then make sure that those patients get into those programs that can help manage that chronic condition for the better outcomes. So they have less emergency room visits, less admissions to the hospital. So that way we're living longer and we're living healthier. Okay, guys. So now that I've had the opportunity to chat with Barbara about the impact of the social determinants of health, I wanted to sit down with her and talk about the impact of our documentation. In her conversations and her experience, what she has seen in the documentation, the discrepancies, and of course, the underutilization of many areas of that documentation when it comes to the social determinants of health. So let's tune in. Right now, sometimes if I if I do a presentation on risk adjustment, sometimes I have physicians in attendance or um, nurse practitioners or um, clinical team members, and they will say, you know, especially in primary care, we have so much to document. This is just another thing for us to include. And what I tell them is the beauty of 2021 guidelines is that we do not focus on having that physician document all that history, you know, the review of systems and the physical exam and, you know, you document what is pertinent or relative to that visit. So that way they're not having to spend, say, if it was a whole 10, 15 minutes, making sure all those components of the chart note were documented in maybe a detailed or comprehensive format so they can focus on that encounter documentation for some of these social determinants of health, whether the patient has food insecurity, their homelessness, you know, if they have a lack of education or water or whatever it is, so they can encompass all those data codes. For And, and what's the beauty of all of that is that we can run reports off of this. So for instance, say you change something in your office, say say you work for a large group or a health system and you hire social workers and you want to find out those patients that have had many hospital admissions, um, that sort of thing, or there's been a lack of um, healthy food and you can run a report. So if you want to focus some information or share some information with those patients, you can do it that way. Wow, guys. Are you listening to all of these amazing tips from Barbara? She truly is an expert in risk adjustment. I myself, as an educator, learned so much from her. A lot of the insights that she offers when it comes to not only the social determinants of health and how they impact every single patient and everyone in our community, but also how as coders and those in abstract data, how we can educate our providers and help them to see the importance and that we're here to help them and we don't want them to feel burdened by all the documentation requirements. It's about the patient. They are here to provide patient care so that when they have this proper documentation, they know they've taken care of that patient. Then that next physician or service provider can have the information they need about that patient to properly care for them in their specialty or in the services that they need to provide. So as we work together with our physicians and our providers of service, we can show them the connections between what they document and the level of care the patient receives. Okay, so we've talked about the social determinants of health and how important they are. 
We've talked about the importance of documenting them and the importance of documentation. But now let's get down to what we love to talk about as risk adjustment coders is the risk adjustment models. Now, for those of you who are new to risk adjustment, I'm going to mention some acronyms, but I'm going to explain what they mean. So we are going to talk about the CMS HCC, the HHS HCC, and the prescription or RX HCC. So you might be wondering, what does HCC stand for? Well, that stands for hierarchical condition categories. So there are different categories that are part of these models. And of course, they really focus on trying to predict the future health cost. And they base this information on things such as the demographics of the patient and their diagnosis. As mentioned, of course, CMS, which would refer to Medicare, uh, a Medicare Advantage plan, for instance, um, when you look at the on a very basic level, what's happening is they're paid different amounts from Medicare uh, for these members that they have based on the risk or the cost it's going to take to insure that patient. And then, of course, we have the HHS, HCC. Now, this was, of course, really designed more for your commercial carriers, which is where you're going to see that at. And it includes patients of different ages, of course, uh, not just your Medicare population age, but those of different ages and uh, backgrounds. You'll see categories for infants, children, and adults of all ages. Now, for those of us that work in risk adjustment or are educators for risk adjustment, we know the importance of ICD-10-CM guidelines. And that's what we're doing. We're abstracting diagnosis codes, right? And we're instructed in our official guidelines to code all documented conditions, but conditions that what coexist at the time of the visit, or they might require or affect the care or treatment plan of the patient. We understand in risk adjustment, the acronym MEET, don't we? So M is for monitoring. We're monitoring signs and symptoms, disease progression. We're evaluating looking at test results. How is the medication working? How are they responding to treatment? Then we're going to assess or address maybe something that we've ordered or a discussion we're gonna have with the patient. Maybe we're going to look at records and even counsel the patient. And then the treating. We're gonna treat them with either medication, a therapy, or maybe a procedure. So that's the meat. We understand that's where we live in risk adjustment. And even from a very basic level, when we're coding uh, ICD-10 and we're not involved in risk adjustment, it should still be our focus. We should still be abstracting based on those official guidelines. Now, within risk adjustment, we're looking to a certain element or we're looking for a certain purpose in that documentation that maybe someone who's not in risk adjustment isn't focusing on. We don't code evaluation and management. We don't code procedures. We look at those elements and we know that the, the accurate documentation will affect those areas. Uh, but in our world in risk adjustment, we're mostly concerned about cost and of course, the, getting the patient the right treatment that they need at the right time. And these insurance carriers, they're concerned about the bottom line. You know, Do they have enough to care for the patients in their population that need these services? And so that's really what it's about, isn't it? On a very basic level, about taking a risk adjustment course, which of course we offer, and there are several educators out there that offer risk adjustment courses. Uh, so at a very basic level, before we listen to Barbara talk about these models when it affects mental health, which is what we're talking about today, 
on a very basic level, understanding the differences between the different models is important for your job, isn't it? You need to know, um, am I focusing for this patient, uh, which model do they fall into? And what categories um, do these fall into? Now, we understand Medicare, of course, that's for those Advantage plans. And then uh, for the HHS, this is uh, for paying insurers that are part of the Affordable Care Act marketplace or those commercial carriers. And for CMS, we're going to base those conditions on the current year diagnosis that's going to determine the rates that we're going to have for the next year. And then the HHS model, it's going to look at current year diagnoses and look at those payments for that current year. You're going to see age-wise, of course, in the CMS, as mentioned, we, we know that patients who have Medicare or these plans are typically over the age of 65 or disabled patients. And then the HHS model will really include all ages, right, as mentioned. Now, we're going to look at things such as the drug costs in the HHS model. They're going to include drug costs. Uh, the CMS HCC will not include that. Now, as far as the conditions themselves, we're going to see more long-term conditions like diabetes, uh, COPD, congestive heart failure that are calculated in the CMS uh, HCC model. Now, you're not going to typically see those of an acute nature, right, or injuries, um, but you will potentially see that in the HHS HCC model, which accounts for both chronic and acute conditions, things like maternity care organ transplants, maybe uh, low birth weight in babies. And so there's much information out there and we will put some really cool references and items that are dealing with different aspects, like we mentioned earlier on social determinants of health and uh, the risk models and documentation in our show notes so that you have a great reference to go back to if you're learning risk adjustment or just wanna kind of refresh your memory on some of these important elements that you know already. And of course, we want to understand the value that is placed on these, these conditions, right? There is a value associated with all of these categories. They have this relative factor. Um, just like in the DRG assignment, if we're an inpatient coder, we understand the weight that is applied to a certain classification. So we have a relative factor that is assigned to certain conditions. So, for instance, we have HCC-18, which is diabetes with a chronic complication. And then we have 17, which is diabetes with an acute complication. So, depending on this chronic condition and what other things come into play at the same time, it may change that relative factor, which, again, will, of course, affect the cost of insuring that patient. When they have these other conditions added to it, then of course, they're gonna need more services, they're going to consume more resources, aren't they? And again, on a very basic level, what is your job as a risk adjustment coder? You wanna validate and abstract the appropriate documentation into codes. We wanna look at that documentation, assign the appropriate ICD-10 codes, and we're gonna submit those codes to CMS or HHS plans for reporting. That's what we're trying to do. We need to report that data to those organizations. And then from there, that helps them understand what services are appropriate or needed for their members. So now we have a basic understanding of these models, risk adjustment, what it is, 
how we understand it on a very basic level, of course, right? I can't teach you everything about risk adjustment in 20 minutes, right? Or less. So now let's get back to our conversation with Barbara Shaw. And let's talk about the HTC models when it comes to mental health. What I have picked out today, Barbara, is a couple items that we understand that affect mental health specifically. Because what we want to get down to is for this particular specialty, those that work in mental health um, or a facility that handles that type of reimbursement, there are elements to that, such as homelessness and school dropout, marital instability, economic insecurity, and then even um, sexually transmitted disease risks. So for homelessness, for instance, how could this particularly affect a patient's mental health? As we read some of these case studies, sometimes they talk about the so social economic type things and that these patients sometimes will have more issues as far as the behavioral health type things, meaning as I've read in some documentation from the CDC and such, they'll, they'll talk about these patients in low income communities. They can have higher stress levels. You know, they can um, have an increase of alcohol consumption, lack of exercise, all these different types of things. And with these mental health issues. And so we want to make sure that we document that patient with our ICD-10 code so we know exactly everything that's a component of that patient so we can address that and help these patients so they can get good care and have better outcomes. 100% agree. And when I think about the next one, which is uh, marital instability, I want to talk about that. Now, this could be more of like, um, obviously, a, in the home situation, obviously. But when a patient comes to get care, or maybe decide not to get care, could that be because of some of these things? And how can that affect them even getting the care they need? Right. Sometimes when that happens to some patients, they're not getting the care at the time that they need it. And we, we, some people do not understand that those are issues for some patients. You know, some people, we, you know, in America, we're so fortunate for the most part, we want to see our physician, we call the doctor's office, we get an appointment and we're seeing. However, there are some patients that do not have that luxury of being seen when they need to be seen, whether it's um, judgment issues that they have due to some of their um, mental health issues and some of the extra stresses that are going on in their lives. I 100% agree. And I think about women or, or men, um, those who have a marital issue, or maybe they're afraid of their spouse and what how they might react. And so maybe they don't want anything re revealed in a medical appointment that could affect them in a physical way. And so it's hard, right? You know, whether you're a man or a woman to decide how is this going to affect me at home if I get, if I get help and, and it really can affect the mental state of that person. Um, and we think about people that don't seek help when they're in a, a violent situation. Um, they're also experiencing a mental condition or disease in some way that is identified that of course makes it harder for them to seek, seek the help they need of a medical nature. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. It seemed like there for many years, you know, decades ago, that 
people who would state that they had mental health issues, that it was a taboo type subject. It was something that just was not discussed. So these people were were really in a in a very um, awkward situation because they they needed they needed help first of all, and they needed to talk to someone that they could trust so they could have a treatment plan and and get better. And so one of the outcomes with the pandemic is that not only are we having a an economic crisis but a health crisis and a lot of these mental health things have come to the forefront i mean as we saw with some of our um, olympians that competed you know the stresses and the mental health type things and to realize that it's okay i mean it's it's the same um parallel to say yes i'm a cancer survivor or yes i have anxiety disorders or, or whatever it is, it's okay. You know, not every one person is perfect. Not every one person is healthy. And the basis is that we want to have great outcomes. We want to have great treatment plans. So that way everyone is better. 100% agree with that. And I was just thinking about even our healthcare workers themselves and, you know, those on the front lines through these last two years that have maybe even, spoken out about what the treatment they received, but then also not getting the treatment they needed while they were trying to take care of patients. And they even maybe have left the profession because they were just so burnt out and how sad that that had to happen and that we couldn't talk about mental health through this whole process and get the help that we need. Exactly. Exactly. There, I mean, like we know, this is the great resignation era and everything like that. And especially in healthcare, as we know, in nursing, that's, it's tremendously, I mean, physicians too, it's just tremendous burnout with everything that they went through. I mean, the hours and the stress and everything like that. So I think everyone as a whole realized how important it is to have our healthcare teams and that the stresses of the pandemic, you know, hit those frontline workers uh, most, you know, unfortunately it, it happened to them the most. Absolutely. And of course, we know economic security, that next one is is always a thing. Like It's never in all of our history. We, we, it seems like there's never been a decade where we haven't had some kind of economic insecurity. And it's, it seems to be getting worse, obviously, with the pandemic heightened those the awareness of those, I believe, uh, when, we, when it comes to being um, unable to afford medications, unable to get to your appointments because you can't afford gas and all of these things are definitely affected. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Well, there's lots of stresses and, and I'm, unfortunately with the inflation at hand, with with the cost with groceries and such, you know, everyone sees it firsthand. And if you take that population that is on limited um, budgets and such, and as inflation increases, it's hard for them to afford it because they have that set budget. They they do not have the extra monies to go to Starbucks and get a coffee before they go to work, eat mm-hmm. out and that sort of thing. So it's, it's, it's affecting them most, you know, those patients, that group of people, I should say. Absolutely. And uh, circling back to something that I wanted to talk about um, with the children, um, the school dropout rate. Now, I am not an expert personally in those rates. Uh, I know you can look up data, I'm sure. But in, in general, that was mentioned as one of the effects on mental health. But then there's just the fact that our children experienced a time period these last two years 
that were unprecedented on their mental health. And we are going to, of course, you and I, you and I will discuss this and we'll so look forward to your presentation at the Pediatric Summit on April 16th um, about risk adjustment and the mental diseases um, and even the medical conditions, um, physical conditions that patients experience of pediatric nature. But what do you think when you look at charts and you see some of these things in risk adjustment, for instance, how do you see the effect on the children since the pandemic? The pandemic has affected everyone. It's not just one socioeconomic group, you know, or if it's men versus women, it has affected everyone. And from children to the elderly, I mean, no one no one has been dismissed from it. It's it's equally despaired and you know, amongst all of us. And so when you look at chart documentation, you know, it it saddens me, um, you know, to read that, you know, in that it affects everyone, you know, to include children, you know, just like, you know, cancers affect children, so do, you know, mental health issues. And so we have to make sure that these children can get to their providers, they can talk to the providers and get a great treatment plan so they can be well taken care of. Absolutely. And, you know, they're all the, I just think all the back and forth, you know, some they were taken out of school and at, at home and and they were in the middle of building these relationships with their peers. And those uh, those are years that are really important for children to grow and to be in society and to learn how to adapt and learn how to communicate with other uh, children. And as they grow, build those relationships. And that was kind of taken from them. And not that we not that children don't love their families, but you know, as a child being stuck in the house all day, and now we have the added, you know, caveat of them being so glued to their TV and their screens, and the mental health that that brings. And then they're, okay, okay, now we're going to put you back in school. Then we're going to take you back out again. You know, just all of these things, like how did that affect the, the children? Like, I can't even imagine. Right. And the social skills have definitely suffered a lot, especially with children in school. I definitely agree. Since I was a child, I think back, you know, I lived in a generation where it was kind of a mix. Like I remember having cell phones when I was an older, like a teenager, but then I remember not having them. And I remember not having access to conveniences, but then I also remember having them. So and a weird generation gap there. But then now the children today, that's all they know. They, all they know is technology. All they know is they can get access to things from anywhere in the world. Um, dangers, of course, come with that. But we see just the stress of trying to meet deadlines, even like I think in school nowadays, they're the pressure put on them to be perfect and to meet deadlines is something we don't really see until we're in the workplace. Right. But now right. they're being pushed at them in, at a young, a young age. Right. I remember when the pandemic started and everything like that, the the surrounding cities by me where they were buying these um, tablets, you know, iPads or what what whatever they were exactly. And they were giving them to the students. So they had that so they could receive their instructions online. They could do the classwork. And then for those students that did not have access to Internet, they could either come to the school, um, certain libraries were allowing them to use their Wi-Fi. I know some parents that could afford it, you know, some of them would get the mobile hotspots in case their home wasn't um, cable ready and that sort of thing or internet um, access wasn't available. And it was just, 
so many steps in order to keep the children on top and current with their studies and everything that went with it. And so with that being said, their whole routines were disrupted just like everybody else's and still trying to keep them at that level. So that way they are the same as their peers. It's a shame, you know, but we we did have some challenges. We we did learn a lot from this this experience um, in society and maybe what we're where we need to work on and improve in, in different levels, especially in healthcare. But when it comes to risk adjustment, let's just a high level overview, just so for those of our listeners who are new to risk adjustment, why do we even use risk adjustment methodology? Well, the methodology is is used for different things. Um, for instance, some of our physicians participate with certain um, health plans in which they allow for HCC code abstraction for different um, types of um, projects and such that they may participate with. And then of course, we can take these HCCs like with our population health teams and we can work with those patients, certain ones that have different um, conditions and diseases and disorders where if they need the extra resources to help them manage that condition so that way we have the great um, outcomes. So that's that's the that's the trade-off on it. Another thing that's very beneficial as we're all hearing about it is is educating our providers, educating our clinical teams as well as our coding teams because as we know encounter data being documented by the providers is so important. We need to make sure that we effectively educate our providers. I know sometimes I can read some provider documentation notes and I'll see certain things that are documented and find out that they've been educated incorrectly, you know, with certain rules or maybe their practice management system has certain um, mappings or IMO things where it will leave diagnosis codes that are in error. So there's lots of things with documentation that we can improve upon. In a previous episode, I did mention some of the conditions. And since we're here talking about healthcare and, you know, we work in healthcare on the business side, and we also, of course, have to deal with personal issues that affect. And I, in our previous episode, I talked about how sometimes, of course, we have to separate what we go through in a professional way from our personal life. Sometimes that can overlap because we're dealing with something at home and then we bring that to work or we're dealing with something at work and we bring it home. But what happens when we work at home and it's all kind of intertwined and we, we deal with these situations and we might encounter an individual that in management situation or a leadership position that kind of is not the kind of personality that we can deal with. But one of the things I talked about in a previous episode was the fact that we have to separate a personality trait from a disorder and there is a disorder it's called personality disorder but in within that hcc or within that category they have different types of disorders and one of them is narcissism and we also have borderline personality disorder and it has different connotations which our psychologists that we'll have interviewed later will of course discuss that for us but what i looked up barbara is the hcc 60 is the cms hcc model and then we have HCC 90, which is the commercial. Now, what is the difference just on a, a basic level between those? Well, each one of the, the payer models, they can, they, you know, those parties 
those stakeholders that hold the managers and such will create the hierarchy of these conditions. So whether CMS has it as, as a certain level versus um, commercial, that's up to those people who decide those things. But nonetheless, you know, HCC for the personality disorders, whether it's 60 or 90, if that patient truly has that, that, that documentation, that clinical diagnosis, that disease, that disorder, it should be documented in that note because it's, it's correct. That is pertinent to that patient. And the thing about this is I think there's about 15 or 16 of these um, different conditions in that category. And some of them, actually, when you, when you look at them, where you can use your DSM-5 to help you code and everything like that, and you look at some of the modifying personality traits, they're very interesting. And, it'll, and if you review it and study it, you will know. So if you're working a project, you know, whether you're working a mental health project or you're wanting to be a better um, HCC coder or auditor, and you're wanting to get more fluent with these conditions, is to sit down there and look at that clinical criteria in the DSM-5 that can help you because there are so many of these disorders that are actually underdiagnosed that need to be diagnosed because these patients are truly being treated for that condition. And I know as I have done some reviews and I've done some provider educations, some of these physicians will actually have like little cheat sheets as we all refer to, and they'll just stick a diagnosis there like, oh, this encompasses that. And so we need to sit down with them and let them know that these different um, categories are there so you can diagnose these patients accordingly. Oh, yes, absolutely. That's a great point. And when it comes to what I looked up as well, I thought it was really interesting about the HCC prescription model, because when I looked at the information, you know, for, for, for specific conditions that were of a personality disorder, there were some that were just in CMS or the commercial, um, the HHS, but then there were some that actually took in um, all three that had the, the CMS, the commercial HHS, and then also the prescription. Now, give me an example of why there would be an HCC prescription maybe for one uh, model versus or one condition versus another. Well, I would think it's probably due to the cost of the medication mm -hmm. to manage that condition. Um, another parallel to some of these um, personality disorders on cost of the medications is HCC-40, which is our rheumatoid arthritis and connective tissues. Those patients are on biologics. They're on these injections that are like $7,000 a shot. I do not know ballpark figures on the medications to help these patients that need these different types of medications, but I'm sure it's expensive. I would imagine so. And just for our audience, just to understand, it's really one of the main reasons we track this, the costs and the quality too, but we want to make sure that uh, we can continue to offer these services to the patient. And so when it comes from a business standpoint, these insurance companies, they want to know how much is it going to cost me to insure this patient? I'm going to look at this previous data. I know they're, they have this condition. Maybe they have another one at the same time. And then they have all these medications and this particular one in, included this mental health condition they have, this medication they're taking. It's expensive. We have to, of course, be able to reimburse them or cover that. And we have to know how much um, 
we're going to be shelling out basically for covering these services. Right. It's just like when you authorize some of the treatment for some of these patients, they have different treatment plans, you know, whether it's psychotherapy, behavioral therapy, different things like that. And then the medications that help manage it. It's a lot of moving pieces to manage this. 100%. Well, Barbara, I really appreciate you coming on today and, and discussing uh, the value and the importance of abstracting uh, mental health conditions when it relates to our social determinants of health. And of course, the understanding of when it comes to risk adjustment, how that comes into play. But I also think we both know as coders and educators, the evaluation and management piece, right? We've talked about, of course, the diagnosis portion and then risk adjustment, but we also know that social determinants of health are an element in our evaluation and management, aren't they? Yes, they are. So I wanted to kind of just highlight that just for our listeners. Many of you might have attended several sessions um, this past week on evaluation and management at HealthCon, um, or maybe you've attended another conference or watched a webinar throughout all of 2021 when we had these updates to the medical decision-making table. So you'll find it, of course, in the moderate category there in the risk element there. Now, Barbara, I'd like your opinion. Why do you think it's so important for us to capture it in this area, in this risk? Why does that capture a risk when evaluating the patient? When you're looking at your encounter data and you're following, you know, what identifies something as far as risk and that sort of thing, and those things are described and documented in the chart note, then that will support your level for it. So for instance, I know that um, the AHA um, coding clinic had one back in 2018 that allows our, our support staff to document in charts. And of course the physician can review the note, um, making sure that the documentation is supportive of that when they sign off on it because those things, those circumstances are very important in, you know, leveling out that, that code. It's so important. Absolutely. And I just wanted to highlight, you know, the connection there, because we look at our, our evaluation management note, and we don't necessarily, we don't really use the actual diagnosis code itself. We kind of have to keep the thought separate when it comes to the problems addressed. Now, we may understand ICD-10 guidelines as one thing, but when it comes to our evaluation and management, it's important to have several things listed because even if we're not coding it from an ICD-10 standpoint, we know, okay, like the doctor is not actively managing that condition, so we don't pull it out on that visit. But when it comes to the evaluation management portion, they may be considering that condition when they decide to do a procedure. So we want to separate the thoughts there with the different code sets when we're doing evaluation management. So even though we know that maybe they're not treating that, but they have this condition or they have this issue with a social factor, it's going to potentially affect that procedure that they're going to have. Maybe maybe that condition is affecting them not getting it. And how is that going to affect them if they decide not to get the procedure? Exactly. Because, for instance, you could have a patient that sees their provider and it's decided that they need to have surgery. And he makes that decision to do the surgery. The ENM is selected and everything like that. Also, with those, those instructions that are given to the patient, depending on what medications they're on, as far as how they need to take them during this period, 
for them to have this surgical procedure. So for those patients that are on these medications, I mean, there's lots of moving components that are important um, for that. And all of that needs to be documented in the note. So that way it's, you know, we paint that picture, you know, all of that is, so that way that leveling is decided and it's done accurately. Absolutely. And that's what I, when I'm teaching E&M, I'm sure you do the same. I, I talk to my students and I try to help them separate the concepts because we have to know what they have um, in order to, do, to pull that into the right bucket um, for that level. And, you know, we want to highlight, too, that just because the patient decides not to have a procedure doesn't mean that the provider cannot choose that level because he decided that they needed it. And I want to kind of make that clear because it's medical decision making. The provider decided to do that. That's his decision. They need this in order to help them. But whether or not they do it or not doesn't discount the fact that he, they made that decision and they should get credit for it. Exactly. And so that's one thing I want to highlight. And you're an auditor. I'm an auditor. And recently I had the privilege of helping uh, build a, a software type uh, system where we can decide, OK, how can we make a better auditing software? How can we pull in these elements? And that's one of the things I found that I was interested in was the fact that some of these auditing softwares out there don't account for that with the new guidelines that wow. we know that you have to have a certain condition and in order to report on the claim or to audit for that you have to look for documentation okay is the provider is he or she um, pulling this out because they're managing it or are they going to have someone else managing that and we have to go with our ISTA 10 guidelines but there wasn't really an element to pull up for the audit when we we're looking at it for a risk standpoint and that's what I think um, some of these softwares out there are lacking. And so when I'm looking at them and I'm comparing them, I'm looking for these things. Like what do they have or not have that we need as auditors? And so I, I implore all you auditors out there to really, uh, you know, reach out. If you have any issues with what you're using or elements you need in a software, please let us know because we want to help create this amazing way for us to audit um, efficiently and have all the elements there we need for all service lines, whether it's oncology, which is what we do, or E&M, or surgery, radiology, whatever it is, what can we do to make this better? That's great. I mean, anytime you can get a great tool that can help you like that, especially as we've automated auditing, I know some people will use a, you know, Excel spreadsheet or something, and they're doing it themselves manually. I mean, to create a tool like that is great. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing I'm I'm kind of looking at. And as the director of education and consultant at OncoSpark, that's one of the things we're always trying to evolve and, and consider is like how can we improve the business side of healthcare and in an efficient way? Because there I think there's a lot of tasks that we try to do manually and still in this day and age that can be automated and can be more efficient. And then there's those tasks where we can spend more time and that we need to spend more time in when we're when we're dissecting operative notes um, or we're auditing a chart. We need to sometimes use that old school brain, right, the actual yeah. human brain and use it to what it's supposed to be used for. Let the computer do what this job is, but let our human brains do their job. Exactly. Exactly. Is my thought there. Uh, well, any uh, closing thoughts you wanted to leave our audience or um, Barbara, um, do you have any words of wisdom for risk adjustment coders? I mean, first and foremost, if you're new to the specialty, if you're really thinking about um, getting the specialty or adding it to your list of specialties that you're proficient in, I highly encourage you to find a program that's going to help you so that way 
you have a better understanding and with the course that you've devised and the whole curriculum is it's just amazing as thorough as it is it's it's so valuable because i know as i learn different things i always like to have good references good books to help me if it's a course so it's great that you have the course set up and you dive so deep into it and you explain it from the bottom up so that way it crescendos to know where you're starting from to where you need to be so that way you can pass the test which is wonderful and we all know whether you work for a physician or university health system, multi-specialty or whatever, we know that these risk adjustment plans and contracts are a part of the offices, the payers talk to us and how important it is to understand that, you know, you take into consideration what your specialty is, if you're primary care or if you're oncology, OBGYN, whatever your specialty is, and then you apply these other things to it. But having an understanding of risk adjustment is important. So, and But what it boils down to is totally understanding what the coding guidelines are, and you go from there on up. Absolutely. And I want to remind everyone to always use authoritative sources like our books and those out there created by specific payers that are an authoritative guidance when we're billing that payer, right? So their their information is is the authoritative source because that's who we're billing. So keep in mind all those moving pieces when you're when you're doing this. And thank you so much, Barbara. And we we all look forward to your upcoming risk adjustment sessions at our pediatric conference April 16th, and also um, back in our oncology conference that's going to be held on June 25th. So we look forward to hearing from you then. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Have a great day. Well, what a fabulous conversation we had with Barbara today. I love getting together with her and talking about risk adjustment and really anything coding related and documentation, the business of healthcare. It's what we do. And I love it. I hope you do too. I hope you walk away today with some little extra information or knowledge that you can take back to your practice or your facility or your your organization. It's about understanding the documentation and helping the industry be successful. And if you would like additional training and education, Always remember, we have a great website, ozarkinstitute.oncospark.com. We have great training opportunities on there that are virtual, on demand, and we're so excited that we get to have this opportunity to bring those to you. Many of us have gotten so used to virtual education these last couple of years, and there are still those of us out there that still want that option, right? We love being in person, being with actual humans, right? I know I'm looking forward to being in New Orleans this year for the Healthcare Advocacy Summit in person, but I still like my option. If I want to learn something about pajamas or I wanted to, I'm on the road and I want to learn something, I can turn on a podcast or I can download a webinar or watch a virtual video. And I think it's so great to still have that option. So I encourage you to attend one of our virtual events. As mentioned, Barbara and I will both be speaking at the Virtual Pediatric Summit on April 16th. And the nice thing is, even if you can't attend, grab a ticket, get that ticket, and you'll have access all year, and you don't have to wait to get your CEUs. Uh, whenever you decide that you want to listen to that all year, you can get CEUs even after the live event. All you have to do is take a test, like we always do, right? Uh, you get that CEU certificate. We are offering eight CEUs for that conference, but we have more topics throughout the year as we've been promoting as on the show. As you've noticed, we have, of course cardiology coming in May. And then we have oncology in June. And my favorite specialty, of course, is orthopedics, huge orthopedics fan. 
that's going to be in July. And we know that in-person events are important and we want to get back to that. So watch for updates as we continue to offer them. We are looking to offer in-person events in the fabulous city of Dallas, Texas, one of the locations that you can find Onco Spark. So stay tuned for those updates. This has been Jennifer McNamara with the Life as a Coder podcast. As I always say, knowledge is power. The knowledge you gain today makes you powerful tomorrow. Never stop learning and never stop growing. Thank you again to our podcast producer, Gabriel Fast with Highland Productions. Until next time. Thanks for joining the Life as a Coder podcast. Please feel free to rate or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other healthcare professionals just like you. Join us next Wednesday for another episode. We'll catch you then.